University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkland. Visit ubc-br.org or at ubcbr on Facebook for more information. After today, we're going to take a few weeks break from our Kingdom series. We've been looking at the parables in the Gospel of Luke and seeing how Jesus uses story to help us reframe our way of thinking and living. Jesus is trying to show us that our world is backward, and he is inviting us to move in the right direction. So for this, we look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, verse 1. So what's going on in the uh, text around our passage for this morning. Well, Jesus has been teaching a crowd of thousands, and it has been somewhat contentious because Jesus has warned the people against religious hypocrisy. He's responded to this quarrel between two brothers in which he tells this parable of the rich fool, and then he proclaims that it is not peace but division among family and friends by which he's come. So our conversation picks up with Jesus touching on current events. Verse 1 states, Now there were some present that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifice. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all will perish. For those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too all will perish. Acts of terrorism and tragedy are not new realities for our time. They've always existed. The Pontius Pilate we encountered in the Gospel of John might be a bit misleading for the historical figure who was actually ruthless. Pilate seized the temple treasury in Jerusalem and used it to build the Roman aqueducts, and he was known for squashing riots and uprisings with merciless tactics. Now, there was a moment in history that Jesus is touching on here as he has this conversation in which Pilate is credited with a similar act of violence against religious pilgrims. The idea we get from this passage is that a group of pilgrims were slaughtered by Roman soldiers. Their blood was actually spilled on their religious sacrifice. And then there was this other tragedy that Jesus refers to in the text. In Jerusalem, near the pool of Siloam, a tower fell and the accident cost 18 people their lives. Both circumstances are horrible tragedies. And just think about our, our given year. Just think about 2020, and, and we find so many unfortunate events that have happened around us. As of today, the American death toll for the coronavirus is, is over 208,000 people, while the infection rates have reached nearly 8 million people. Over 40 million people have lost their jobs from this pandemic. And moving beyond COVID-19 crisis, we forget about other incidents that have happened, like a, a wildfire that, that swallowed up thousands upon thousands of acres in Australia. We forget that Kobe Bryant and his daughter died in this horrible helicopter accident. We've touched on before our conversations about the murder of George Floyd and, and the riots and conversations that have come out of this outcry of racial disparity within America. 
400,000 people were forced to flee their homes in Indonesia earlier this year as a result of a devastating flood. And this is just a warm-up list of the tragedies that people have experienced in 2020. And, and we can't even zero into specific context and communities and individuals. And, and based on the beginning of our passage from Luke, it seems as much as things change, they really do stay the same when people's perspective of death and devastation and just like Jesus day many people are quick to blame tragedy on the wrath of God I can just close my eyes and I can vividly remember hearing Jerry Falwell saying that the tax of 9-11 was God's wrath against America over our tolerance of a laundry list of sins and whether it be a school shooting or natural disaster or pandemics or election results it seems as though America's self-proclaimed prophets have a thing or two to say about God's wrath and God's judgment. The question being asked, are these tragedies the result of victim sins? Were those people unworthy of God's grace? These bad things happen to bad people, right? Those people, those people who were slaughtered by Pilate, those people who were killed from a falling tower, were those people sinners worse than anyone else? This is the attitude and theology of the crowd. And to the normal Jewish reaction would to have assumed that their experience of tragedy was a result of great sin, that they deserved this death. And in fact, for many people in our day, the same theology and understanding of tragedy is held. But thank God that Jesus is a part of this story. Because he uses two recent tragedies to shatter the theological framework of his audience. Do you honestly think this is how God works? By sending punishment to sinners. You can just hear Jesus asking. Even bad things happen to good people. This is not how God works according to Jesus. Jesus refuses to act as if God is supposedly pulling the strings, ensuring only good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And Jesus refuses to act as if this is the failure of God's part. And in doing so, Jesus undermines the ideology underneath the people's questions. In effect, he is saying that the world doesn't work like that. If we can just maybe contemplate the ramifications of what Jesus is dissolving here in this moment, that God is not the conductor of the world's tragedies. Jesus takes advantage of the moment by teaching people to take a closer look at themselves. We had an event um, here at the church over the last year in which I found myself going through uh, some of the buildings, cutting off lights, except when I walked into the heritage room, this room at the back of the sanctuary, I quickly found that I was not alone in the room. And I just about jumped out of my clothes because I caught this unexpected person in this darkened room. And I spoke to them, and I got no response, which, of course, freaked me out. So I ran and cut on the lights, and I found that the reason the person wasn't speaking back to me is it was because it was me. It was my reflection in the person-sized mirror on the other side of the room. You see, looking at ourselves in the mirror can be super difficult at times. And this is what Jesus is begging his listeners and us to do in this moment. Stop being concerned about the sins and brokenness of other people. I want you to look at yourself. 
And I think one of the reasons we get so attached to the mistakes and flaws of other people, whether it be a celebrity affair or whether it be a politician's gaffe or a co-worker's blunder or the guy that we don't see politically eye to eye with, with his errors, it, has, it takes the focus off of ourselves and puts it on someone else. As one psychologist put it, the psycho- psychological game that the ego plays keeps us from looking within ourselves. We find fault with others. We tell ourselves that there is not much work to be done regarding our shortcomings. From the ego's perspective, faults exist outside of the individual. From the standpoint of awareness, fault-finding indicates presence of inherent flaw that the ego tries to hide. Ask yourself, do you like to point out the wrong in other people? Or do you often find yourself thinking, how stupid can someone be? Do people bother you easily to the point where you you stop sharing uh, moments of grace with them and you find that you share judgment upon them? What Jesus is inviting us to do in this moment, in this scripture passage, in our journey with him, is to look at ourselves. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your neighbor's eye, but ignore the plank of wood in your own eye, he asks. And what we are looking for when we look at ourselves? Well, if we look closely, we'll see that that change is necessary. Look at what Jesus says in verse 5. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too all will perish. That sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? The word repent, Luke's go-to term in his gospel, For many, we cannot hear that word detached from the lips of an angry street corner preacher screaming, repent, for the fires of hell are licking at your toes. Repentance is is one of the most common themes in the Hebrew scriptures. From Genesis to Malachi, God would send a messenger to guide and lead and and warn the people that their actions are hurting their neighbor and, and ultimately their own soul, and God wants something better for them and the world, so they were called to repent. The word Jesus uses here literally means change your way of thinking and living. The Old Testament writers give us an impression that that when the people chose not to repent, that God would send wrath and judgment. And how can you not get that impression when you read stories of Sodom and Gomorrah or Jonah and the Ark or the wilderness wandering, the period of the judges and the exile? This is the theological mindset of the people in Jesus' day who lived under the authoritarian rule of Rome. But when you compare it to the mindset of Jesus' response to the tragedy of the Galileans or the tower incident in Salome, this doesn't match. That doesn't mean that there are not consequences for our actions. There are always consequences for the words, both spoken and unspoken, actions taken and failed to take. God does not absolve us from the consequences of our actions and subsequently the actions of other people. However, Jesus is doing something deeper here. He's trying to invite us into something better. And to illustrate his point, we finally get to our parable. In verse 6, A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard, and he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone 
for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down. Jesus has a weird relationship with figs. Uh, Do you remember that other story in the Gospels in which Jesus curses the fig tree, proclaiming, may no one ever eat fruit from you again? And then we find that Jesus tells a parable that seems to be the opposite of the damned fig story. What's going on in this story is there's a farmer who plans a fig tree in his vineyard, and after three years, uh, that one fig tree ain't doing nothing. So he wants to cut it down and start over. But what's weird about this story is that figs are considered to be juvenile for the first four to five years of their life, not producing much of a harvest. And what they do produce is known to be inedible and bitter and hard fruit during this immature period. And the farmer knows that if he rips this tree and plants another one, he's still going to have another four or five years without this tree producing a harvest worth anything. But the story takes a turn When a servant begs the farmer to let him cultivate and prune and fertilize this tree, give it one more year, the servant said. And I think if we're all to take a closer look at ourselves, we would find that there is work to be done. We all form habits that are unhealthy to our body and our soul and our relationships and to the world around us. We all have shortcomings that often fail to see, whether it be a tendency towards impatience in circumstances or with others or grudges against others for having wronged us or a desire to get what's best for ourselves, no matter if it's at the neglect of others or an inability to hear the struggles of others because we're so focused on ourselves and we can't relate to the experience of the coldness that we turn towards those who are suffering or the belief that we don't make mistakes or hardness or judgment towards others. And if we look closely, maybe we can relate to the unproductive fig tree. We have all had moments in our life where we don't feel like we're producing fruit in our lives. A spouse becomes emotionally unavailable. The adult child never calls. The boss refuses to say thank you. We lose a house or a business or our health or our identity, and we feel like we have nothing left to offer. Sometimes we feel like an unproductive tree. And we feel the eyes of people on us saying, cut down this worthless tree. Or maybe we even feel like that's what God is saying to us. And yet, there's this other character in the story. It's the one who sees that the potential of this unproductive tree. Again, let's give it another year. It's in this part of the parable that Jesus begins to turn the upside-down world right side up. When people and work and society and religion and politics or self want to disregard and discard you, there is another voice that steps in to give you a second chance. Jesus is teaching us that God does not respond to our unproductive lives with judgment, but with grace. And this is why he tells this parable in the first place. Those religious people who believed that the victims of Siloam incident were receiving what was coming to them because of their sin, because of their unfruitful lives. Instead, Jesus shows us that God is a God of second and third and one hundredth chances. The message of repentance itself cannot be disconnected from grace. From the Old Testament into Jesus' parable, God is giving second chances always with the hope 
for positive and healthy change in our lives and in this world. And it's in second chances, one more year, that God points us to change our way of thinking and living. It's in the means of grace that God desires for us to bear fruit, fruit in our lives and through our lives for the world. And just like grace is not detached from repentance, repentance is not detached from grace. Remember, the word repentance means change your way of thinking and living. Jesus gives us a visual metaphor for the work of repentance in our life by the servant who commits to care and prune and fertilize this tree. A healthy fig tree takes work. You can't just plan it and expect results. The tree is not going to change overnight. It's not going to be unproductive and then produce fruit the next day. It starts very difficultly with the servant having to cut off the root shoots that come up from the ground that's sucking energy away from the rest of the tree. It's going to trim back the dead limbs holding off new growth. He's going to have to collect and discard those bitter and hard figs that no one wants. And this is when the grace of God is most powerful at work in our lives when it fuels repentance needed to change us for the better, the grace of God soothes the pain of change that comes from pruning out the stuff that leads to stunted growth in our lives. The grace of God gives us hope that we are not worthless and irredeemable, but we're capable of something more. The grace of God fertilizes our lives with goodness that empowers us to overcome our shortcomings, our failures, our faults, and our mistakes. The grace of God fills our lives with new understanding and purpose, leading us to potentially bearing fruit. You remember in the Gospel of Luke, there's that fascinating story about a tax collector who hears Jesus is coming to town, but the crowd is so big, so he finds himself climbing up a sycamore tree, which is actually a fig tree. There, Jesus was drawn to him and invites him off of the tree and invites himself into the man's home to have a meal. And when Zacchaeus climbed down that sycamore fig tree, he was never the same. Did you know that the Hebrew word for sycamore is, it literally means rehabilitate or rejuvenate. The fig is supposed to be a sweet and succulent fruit. It's actually one of the most remarkably healthy fruits, containing more potassium than a banana, more fiber than a prune, more calcium than a glass of milk. A healthy fig tree produces between 50,000 to 75,000 figs per year over a period of 80 to 100 years. Stop and think about that for just a second. And I don't think Jesus was unintentional and picking out this particular fruit as a metaphor in this parable. You see, God wants our lives to flourish like healthy fig trees, producing an abundance of fruit that blesses our lives and the world around us. And this is the beauty of an intimate journey through repentance and the grace of God. Like a fig tree produces an intimately, like a fig tree producer intimately understands a tree, touching and observing and changing from unproductive to healthy, God is there step by step in our lives, leading us into this abundant harvest. The ancient Hebrew students used to sit under fig trees 
to be taught and to read God's Word. As a slow, ripening fruit represents the new discoveries of life through God's Word, so it is with the harvest that God desires to produce in our life, a fruit of compassion and forgiveness and gentleness and gratitude and humility and joy and kindness and goodness and love and patience and peace and unity. God wants to lead us to a place where our branches are bowing low with the weight of bountiful fruit, filling our baskets until we are satisfied with all of this goodness. Imagine your life sagging with the extraordinary weight of God's goodness, ready to be picked and enjoyed, but also given away to the world who desperately needs it. Imagine the impact of God's grace at work in your life, feeling the second and four hundredth chance, a power of change, the joy of producing goodness in your life. Imagine what good fruit produced through you can do to your family, can do to your friendships, your workplace, your school, your neighborhood, this community, and the world. We are not damned figs but trees receiving second chances through God's grace and compassion to become something bountiful. The brilliant Shel Silverstein uh, wrote this. Once there was a tree, and she loved a little boy, and every day the boy would come, and he would gather her leaves, and he would make them into crowns and play king of the forest. He would climb up her trunk and swing from her branches, and when he was tired, he would sleep in her shade. And the boy loved the tree very much, and the tree was happy. But time went by, and the boy grew older, and the tree was often alone. Then one day the boy came to the tree, and the tree said, Come, boy, come climb up in my trunk and swing from my branches and eat my apples and play in my shade and be happy. I'm too big to climb and to play, he said. I want to buy things and have fun, and I want some money. Can you give me some money? I'm sorry, the tree said, but I have no money. I have only leaves and apples. Take my apples, boy, and sell them in the city. Then you will have the money, and you will be happy. And so the boy climbed up the tree and gathered her apples and carried them away, and the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time, and the tree was sad. And then one day the boy came, and the tree shook with joy and said, Come, boy, come and climb up in my trunk and swing from my branches and eat my apples and play in my shade and be happy. I'm too busy to climb trees, said the boy. I want a house to keep warm, he said. I want a wife, and I want children, so I need a house. Can you give me a house? I have no house, said the tree. The forest is my house, but you may cut off my branches and build a house. Then you will be happy. So the boy cut off her branches and carried them away to build a house, and the tree was happy. But the boy stayed away for a long time, and the tree was sad, and when he came back, the tree was so happy, it could hardly speak. Come, boy, she whispered, come and play. I'm too old and sad to play, said the boy. I want a boat that will take me away from here. Can you give me a boat? Cut down my trunk and make a boat, said the tree. Then you can sail away and be happy.
So the boy cut down her trunk and made a boat and sailed away. And the tree was happy, but not really. And after a long time, the boy came back again. I'm sorry, boy, said the tree, but I have nothing left to give you. My apples are gone. My teeth are too weak to eat apples, the boy said. My branches are gone, said the tree. You cannot swing on them. I'm too old to swing on branches, said the boy. My trunk is gone, said the tree. You cannot climb. I'm too tired to climb, said the boy. I'm sorry, sighed the tree. I wish that I could give you something, but I have nothing left. I'm just an old stump. I'm sorry. I don't need very much now, said the boy. Just a quiet place to sit and to rest. I'm very tired. Well, said the tree, straightening herself up as much as she could. Well, an old stump is good for sitting and resting. Come, boy, sit down and rest. And the tree was happy. God, we turn to you this morning. Understanding that you are a God of abundant grace and mercy. We find at times in our life that we take and we take and we take, not recognizing how abundantly you give. It's so easy in our lives when the money dries up, when the resources dry up, when the friendships dry up, when family dries up, that we look to you as if you have cursed us. And yet you continue to abundantly give out of your compassion for us. So may we just not receive your grace this morning, taking yet again from you. But may we choose in receiving your grace to change our way of thinking and living so that we might become more like Jesus and produce in us an abundant fruit. A fruit that is sagging to the ground in abundance. And we come to your table this morning. We come to your table knowing that this is a table that was open to your followers, but it was also open to the religious self-righteous, to the tax collectors, to the sinners, to the prostitutes, to the lepers. What an abundant table you have laid out before us. So in silence this morning, Lord, we prepare our hearts to come to your table.